Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. This is a podcast uh, about uh, philosophy and and uh, questions about life and what to do about them. I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a philosopher and I'm uh, also a writer in Hollywood. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, concentrating mostly on early 20th century European philosophy. Um, and we're we're very blessed and fortunate uh, because uh, Professor Helen DeCruz is joining us as a guest, um, and uh, she's the first second-time guest in the history of the podcast, so welcome back. Um, she is a professor of philosophy at St. Louis University, and she's the author of a terrific book, a really terrific book that you must buy at least one copy, but ideally a, a second one for your friend, um, called Wonderstruck, How Wonder and Awe Shape the Way We Think. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Taylor. I'm really glad to be here again. Thank you. It's great to see so, you again. So your question, what was your question? I, I thought it was a cool question. What was the question? I wonder, do things happen for a reason? Do things happen for a reason? Is it things generally or things universally? Does everything happen for a reason? Well, that's a very strong way to put it. Right. And yeah. I think most people wouldn't say that everything happens for a reason, okay. right? That would be like a sort of huge hyper-deterministic world that would be difficult to live in. But that's the traditional formulation of the law of sufficient reason, though, right? Like nothing happens yeah. without a reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So everything. Okay. So principle of We're sufficient reason. We're not going there. Reason. Okay. Maybe a little bit. Okay. Good old Leibniz. So yes, you could say nothing happens without a reason, right? But I'm talking about this more in a sort of like a lay sense. So Typically, it's usually when something bad happens. Say somebody's child died. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's little more tragic that you can think about. Then the, the question asked is asked, like, why did this happen? And you could say, okay, the child died because they were crossing the road. A drunk driver came. They didn't see the child. I'm sorry, this is a very grim, grim way to set the tone of this, this mm. podcast. Well, let's let's make it less grim and say it was a bad child. <laughs> okay. Okay. No. A very annoying, obnoxious child. And now go on with your example. Does that make it better or does that just add to the badness of the world? Okay. <laughs> a bad, even so, this bad child crosses yes. the road, drunk driver comes, drunk driver was terribly, you know. He, he went out terribly late. Uh, he is fallen asleep at the wheel. And the child just happened to cross because he wanted to see a friend. So you see, there's all sorts of, of causes for why the child was hit and killed. But it's interesting that people will not feel that that's a sufficient explanation. They will say, why did that happen? Why did the driver just come at exactly that moment? Why did the child exactly that moment wanted to cross? And then they'll say there must be some bigger purpose. Well, uh, what about this? What if I'm a member of Mothers Against Drunk Driving and I say, you know why that happened? Because we don't have strict enough laws against drunk driving in this country. Um, is, is that not a a good way to look at the world? Because when bad things happen, you'll look at the reason and then you and your friends will try and get rid of that reason so bad things like that won't happen again. So if if it's all random, then I can't join Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? Because I can't do anything. It puts me it puts me in a sort of a powerless stance vis-a-vis -vis the uh, bad things that happen. What do you think of that? That's right. That's right. So I think that it's very important 
when something bad happens that we wonder why did it happen mm-hmm. so you know like with every mass shooting yeah now we're really going to very grim territory so you have these mass shootings and then you have this onion article and it always comes up each time like how could this happen say mm-hmm. people in the only <laughs> country in the world where this regularly happens yeah. right? <laughs> right so yeah you're totally right it's good for us to be looking for why this happens so you know that's how medicine that's how technology that's how how we've managed to do a lot of things we just try to discern the causal structure of the world and to see what happens and indeed in the case of the drunk driver and the child you could say it's just because the laws against drunk driving are not because there is a drinking culture because you know that sort of thing yes. the problem is if you over and above start to think there is some bigger cosmic reason or religious reason then i think i've been lately convinced that this is a dangerous way to think it's a different kind of reason we're talking about now though because yeah. even though eric's point raised a sort of counterfactual like how did it happen the explanation is not just the antecedent causes but the absence of some other causes which might have prevented it but now you're talking about reason in a different sense it's notoriously ambiguous right between efficient cause and purpose like what's the purpose of this right or meaning yeah so i i know people and some of them are orthodox religious people and some of them are more new age and they think that um the universe is a school for the perfection of our souls and that the reason why uh we live in a world where kids are killed by drunk drivers is ultimately it'll make our souls better and and i don't know how you would evaluate such a claim but uh, uh, as to whether or not it's true but you think helen that it's bad to think that i think so yeah why is it bad to think that i think it's bad to think that uh for several reasons but so let me first begin by saying that the idea that uh, our souls could be improved by tragedy uh, is a sophisticated and interesting idea. And the main proponent that I know of it is John Hick. Hmm. So John Hick was a British theologian, and he had this uh, what's called soul-making theodicy. That exactly, basically his idea is that God wants great people And the Mm -hmm. best school that you have is a school that is filled with suffering. So it Mm -hmm. makes us better human beings. And once we go to that eternal place, like this is only a short period in the, you know, in the the view of eternity, then uh, we'll be so great. Right, will be mm-hmm. so much greater than we would have been if we just lived in some pleasure garden where everything fell into our laps, mm-hmm. is his idea. And so I do like... I find, you know, the way people often sort of make fun of this idea and they sort of say, yeah, like the Holocaust happened so we could be better people. Like, you know, you can like take any sort of egregious thing and talk about it. But the problem is I found at any rate personally that this idea is very stifling. The idea that somehow there's some sort of greater cosmic purpose that I have to discern is very difficult so I remember this is just like a personal anecdote. Um, I remember that I had a job interview, like um, an academic. So this sounds familiar. So you do like a dozens and dozens of job interviews uh, or applications, hundreds of applications to just land one position. And I just kept on not getting it. Like I always ended up second and somebody else got the job. And eventually I was thinking, it's not meant to be. God doesn't want me 
to be an academic. And then I started thinking, like, what should I be? Like, and I had all sorts of weird ideas about what I could possibly do with my life, a doctorate and several years of postdoc experience. But eventually, you know, I thought, screw that. You know, whether God exists or not, it it's dangerous to be starting to think, oh yeah, there's this bigger cosmic purpose. And somehow, you know, whatever I do, it's always going to be, you know, so it's a fatalist sort of idea that I didn't want. Uh, I think it's just a dangerous idea for yourself to be living in that way. There's some value it could have in being a way of reconciling yourself to something that you're sort of bound to lose. I mean, that that expression, like maybe it wasn't meant to be, could be said in a spirit of, I'm going to stop wishing in vain for this thing. So I'm going to decide to see the world as right without this thing in it. And it could be less of a kind of cosmic theory about how the world works and more like uh, taking up of a different attitude to your life. I do think that that has merit. So I have to say my grandmother was a very, very devout Catholic. And she would always say these things like, it's providence. It's providence that this happens. It's providence. Like everything was providence. Yeah. <laughs> but it helped her to reconcile with really difficult things. So right. she lost her. Her child died of childhood cancer when he was two. Mm. This was incredibly tough. But she also believed it's meant to be. Mm. And the problem is once you lose that sense, so there are genuine losses with us losing this sense in a real, real way, then obviously somebody has to be blamed, right? Like in the case of, say, a child being run over, you know, like you think like, yeah, let's sue. And, you know, in this case, you should probably sue the drunk driver. But there are some situations where somebody slips and falls and there is genuinely like it's just there are causes, but there are no reasons other than to say, well, it just happened. But mm. it's very hard for us to say it just happened. And that's why in the US, and I'm also so surprised to see on buses and on billboards, these things like slip and fall, call 444 or whatever for yeah. this sort of like law firm. And they're going to help you because you you shouldn't have slipped and fallen, but you know, sometimes you just slip and fall. And it's very difficult to accept that that just sometimes happens. Why is it stifling? Like, if, if, you, if you think God wants you to be a professor and you keep not getting the job and you're like, damn it, God wants me to be a professor. I'm going to keep at it. Uh, what, how, what's being stifled in you? Like, how would you be less stifled and more more free and easy if you didn't think that i kind of found it liberating to think i don't know one whether god exists i think so mm -hmm. but who knows two whether god wants me to be a professor i don't know there's no way i can discern that but i did notice that when thinking about everything has a purpose a bigger cosmic purpose or at least significant events was very difficult not to read all sorts of failures in the light of that. Like, well, this job interview, which was clearly my dream job, and clearly, you know, I was a perfect, people always think they're the perfect fit. So like, I wasn't probably the perfect fit, but you always think that. So I thought, that must be saying something. Like that meant, it's not meant to be. So I found it very hard to work with this meant-to-be mindset. And in the end, you become, like, superstitious. It could be sour grapes, too. I mean, uh, it could be a way of saying, I didn't want that job anyway. It wouldn't have been any good. So yeah. if, you're, if you're too quick to decide that it wasn't meant to be, it could be sour grapes. There's a difference between thinking that everything or 
significant things have a purpose or there's a reason and so on. And what you do with that belief, like suppose you believe God exists, but you still don't know what God intends or what the plan is. Is your situation, how different is it from the person who doesn't think there is any reason at all? (laughs) I mean, given that, like Eric said, you could have the belief that there's a purpose for everything and you persist in believing that God wants you to be a philosopher. Um, or you could, as soon as you decide to give up, you can say, well, God didn't want me to be a philosopher. It's hard to see what work it does. I mean, you could look at your favorite student at St. Louis University, who you're having all these great experiences with, and you're teaching them, and they're developing their mind. And if you had gotten that other job, you never would have met that student. Oh, no. (laughs) But then I would have met other. That's what I think now. Uh, You know, I like to think that the universe is open and that there's genuinely... You know, that I do think that there are these causal chains and very often they're deterministic, but I think there is enough sort of stochasticity that we can never predict what will happen. There is no Laplacian demon, even in principle, possible. Hmm. Is this discussion any different if instead of thinking that there's an external God, we think that there's some sort of internal telos to your soul and this is unfolding? So everything happened so that you could unfold in the particular way for you. Is that less stifling? Because there's nobody outside pushing you around. I've been thinking about that. But lately, I've sort of gotten really into Zhuangzi, the the Mm -hmm. Taoist philosopher. And he has several uh, passages where he talks about purpose is overrated. Hmm. If you think of yourself as having a telos, it is very self-limiting. You limit yourself to all sorts of possible openness to responsiveness to your environment that you otherwise would have. He has a few examples of that where, you know, you have uh, Zhuangzi's best friend is Huizhe and they're like really buddies. They're always like talking and Huizhe is like this really cool logician and he has like these huge gourds like the fruit, right? And he says, oh, I had this huge gourd and I just smashed it because I didn't know what to do with it. And Zhuangzi said, well, you could have turned it into a boat and gently went down the river with it. And then he just didn't think about that because he, he's basically in what psychologists would call functional fixedness. Like once you start thinking of the telos of something and like with artifacts, this is obviously a good idea. But when you think of your own telos, you just have, you you quickly get into this fixed mindset. It's a bit like academics, for example, they get into this mindset. Like the only thing I can be is an academic and no other life has purpose for me or wouldn't be a worthwhile life. But that's in part because we just don't think big enough. Like there's so mm. many different things you can do. So a purpose can be liberating too, though. I mean, it's it's really striking me how much all of these things cut both ways, right? So purposelessness, floating down the river in a gourd. I remember that passage from Zhuangzi with no particular mm-hmm. purpose. That's nice. That kind of frees your mind from this sort of feeling like you're on the rails. And being able to let go of some conception of purpose in the face of a loss, like short of sour grapes, it could still be like, I'm going to let go of my commitment to this end. I mean, that's the hard thing to reconcile yourself to real disappointments or tragedies or traumas is to really get your mind out of thinking of the world as like containing this person who died or, you know, involving mm-hmm. this career that now I don't have. It's a really a lot of adjustment and re reconception and reperception of the world. Difficult, right? So it looks like there's a lot of potential suffering in that effort that's maybe necessary, just like it could be 
freeing, but it can also be really distressing to feel that your life is without purpose and point. And I mean, clearly, uh, you can be miserable in either of these states, it seems like, uh, thinking that everything's locked in or that everything is pointless, basically. Sometimes you need purpose for drive, you know, to just get somewhere. Like, I should, like, and it's just like the single-minded thing, like, I should get this book done, whatever else. Like, my reason for existing is this book or something like that, right? And the problem is that there's lots of people who do not make it. So the default, I think, should be, mm. how do I deal with failure? And maybe the best way to deal with failure is to be flexible, at the very least, in our purposes. To be aware that the purpose is really the purpose we give. That you shouldn't be beholden to past purposes. That you should say, look, I think it makes sense to make purposes for your life. But you should be flexibly able to, to switch those around and you shouldn't think that there's some sort of big overarching cosmic thing that you rails as you say like a train like thomas the tank engine you know mm. because before <laughs> you know it you end up in that horrible episode of thomas the tank engine where one of his friends gets like cemented in <laughs> so he, he just wrote rides but he's a bad they train, were all sort so of horrible okay. in that show because yeah. almost in every episode somebody was a bad train it's my memory of it <laughs> i remember he was a bit cheeky Okay, we're going to take a little break, and we will be right back with Helen de Cruz. Helen, when did you decide that life has no purpose? Was this recent? I don't know. Yeah, fairly recent, maybe. Like maybe, like but... last week or like last year? More like last year. Like it's more last like, a, I guess, a pandemic thing. But even before that, I was getting more and more skeptical about the idea. And you have to realize I was hyper teleological. Mm -hmm. Like I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. My my grandmother was very, very, very religious. And providence was always like, you always had to discern, like, what does God, want? Mm -hmm. what does God want for your life? And, and how so, did you discern that what God wanted for when you still believed in purpose? How did you determine that God wanted you to be a philosophy professor? Uh, I don't actually think that God ever wanted that for me. But when so you I thought was, that, did you ever yeah. think that he did? No, I thought I was working against a purpose. Like I thought actually Oh, what did you, so you thought you were in rebellion? Yeah, I was totally rebelling. What did you think the purpose was? Oh, I don't know. Something something small and modest, more more suited to to somebody like me. Like <laughs> I didn't think like honestly, I, I thought uh I'm not good enough. And you know, mm. God thinks I'm not good enough and I mm. should, I don't know, work in some uh, I don't know, as a waitress or huh. <laughs> you know, in a supermarket. So, so I was like, huh. oh, people always thought I was like super pious, but actually I was just like in a total state of rebellion. Interesting. Yeah. And do you think, do you think he backed down or do you think he's waiting? Well, I thought God can change his mind. Like I know classical theism, etc. God knows what's all going to happen. You know, that sort of paradoxes. But I thought, you know, somehow I thought maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll just get tired of it. I don't know. Maybe he'll just say, oh, you know what? You win some, you lose some. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't, I'm not saying this was like super rational, but that was like my continued sense 
was that I was defying the purpose of a, a sort of bigger cosmic purpose in trying to do this. I wonder how essential God is to this picture at all, because um, I grew up not believing in God at all, and I don't think I ever did. Um, and I don't think I ever thought that the world has a purpose. I don't think I ever had any of this cosmic sort of teleological conception of everything. I think I was early on educated and acclimated to the idea that it's a purposeless universe. But uh, nevertheless, I think like anybody, I probably grew up with a sense of assumptions about the way things were going to go and were supposed to go and ought to go. And if they didn't, it was disastrous and difficult to reconcile yourself to. And that's almost a kind of intuitive, pre-theoretical, not necessarily theological or religious conception at all. It's more like how life is supposed to unfold rather than how the world is made up. So I wonder, I mean, it seems like one could have these conceptions about purpose, like Eric was suggesting. I mean, it could either be in your soul, but it needn't be in your soul from the very beginning. It could be something that emerges and starts looking more and more plausible as you get through school. Maybe maybe it's your purpose to be a philosophy professor. It unfolds. But God doesn't have to play any role in this, it seems to me. And, it, and I'm kind of concerned about, in your story, it looks like maybe God is playing less and less of a role completely. If it turns out it didn't really matter whether he was intending you to be a professor or not <laughs> right yeah i don't i don't know yeah. like i i just i think that this is just um we know actually from cognitive science works that re being religious incredibly it's a very strong effect size mm -hmm. increases your teleological thinking. i can believe that yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. people who are theistic they have much more like there's sort of studies where they show pictures like was this made for a reason that's the only thing mm. and they show like a, a leaf of of an oak tree they show uh like a giraffe and a, a, a rock and they ask was this made for a reason and theists will say at a much much higher rate mm. than atheists or, or agnostics they'll say yeah huh. it was made for a reason right, I see. so it's a very strong effect but nevertheless the sort of teleology that you talk about like things are supposed to go a certain way that sort of teleological thinking is much much more widespread yeah so that's that's actually pretty universal and you have to like sort of become aware of that sort of thinking to like fight it uh, because it's really it's it's a cognitive disposition that we have presumably because we do work a lot with like artifacts right so so when we see artifacts around us then we like we know that a cup has a purpose we know that the table has a purpose and so it's very natural to extend this idea of purpose to to other things you can hardly um, you can hardly do without it i think i mean um, yeah. My concern is that it, if it turns out to be true that that's all an illusion, then we're sort of condemned to be living in, a, in an illusion that there's purpose of structure. And if all of that is just stuff we're making up and fictionalizing as we go along, that seems to me a really depressing picture. Yeah, I think... Well, you found it a liberating picture. That's I don't want to lose the yeah. thread, because what I was going to ask was, when you woke up on the next day after having purged your ontology of a sense of cosmic purpose, how did it feel and what did you do differently? I could do anything. Like, I feel that I can do more things. And and as I said, it's... Like, what are some of the things? It's a... Gra okay, so here's just like, it's a gradual thing. So say about 10 years ago, um, a bit over 10 years ago, another failed job interview. And I was thinking like, God clearly doesn't want me to be a philosophy professor. But then I thought, you know what, <laughs> as I was saying, like, who knows what God thinks? Who knows even God exists? I'm going to just not 
think anymore that this was meant to be or was not meant to be. And then I felt so liberated with the next job interview. I thought this can go either way. Whereas before I had the strong sense, like it's not meant to be, doesn't want this for me, but now it could just go either way. It could go like, I, and in fact, I didn't get a job of that particular. Mm. <laughs> so I didn't get like, it would be beautiful if that, and then the reader I or oh. listener, I, I got the job, but no, I didn't. But maybe that's, but maybe that's it, why. <laughs> it could have gone either way. So like anything can happen. Uh, it's in a sense liberating to think that you're not in fact a tank engine on, on a straight track, that, that anything could happen. Well, so, um, yeah, so how do you balance the exhilaration of freedom and openness of possibility with the, what I am kind of attuned to is the anxiety and chaos of <laughs> anything could happen and therefore nothing nothing is on any kind of rails. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like this is a simple choice of either believing it or not believing it. It looks like we have to have some sense of design and intention and goal and purpose, even whatever we think its origin is, uh, while at the same time having some openness and freedom. This is, by the way, exactly the way Kierkegaard talks about selfhood and I think implicitly faith, but what it is to be a self is to have both of these things, that you've got a sense of openness of possibility and freedom, mm -hmm. but he also thinks it's very important that you have a sense of necessity and structure. Well, what does he think is the problem with the person who doesn't have a sense of necessity and structure, with the Chuangzu floating down the river in a pumpkin? Yeah. Well, he thinks that any failure of this balance is going to be a kind of despair. And I think I know what he means. I mean, if you think anything can happen, it's almost like it doesn't matter what does happen. Oh, why is that? Couldn't anything happen, but it still matters? I think you can be paralyzed with anxiety if you feel like the future is so totally unpredictable. I think a lot of depression comes from people feeling like they don't have any control or anticipation, that they're not harmonized with the way the world is going and the way the direction of things, so they can be like riding the surf because they can see the plan, the design, the direction, and so on. I'm reminded of a story that um, there was, a, I guess, some kind of a businessman who met a, um, a Hindu wise man, and um, he said, you know, I'd really like to learn with you and the Hindu wise man was like, okay, let's do it. And he says, oh, well, I got a lot of things to take care of. Let's do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay. Um, and then he discovered that when he showed up that they were having a gigantic triumphal procession, like they were blowing trumpets and banging mm -hmm. cymbals the way someone does if they've won a gigantic victory. And he said, who's this triumphal procession for? And the Hindu wise man said, it's for you. Because obviously you've conquered death. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't say, I'm going to meet you tomorrow. Because only a man who's conquered death would ever say, I'm going to meet you tomorrow. I see. Um, uh, I see. Well, so what, what, little victories. I mean, if it's true, like none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. That's just true. So maybe you should just uh, like turn your frown upside down and turn lemons into lemonade, Taylor, because I, I think it's just the truth that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I think it's true. And honestly, yep. have we not lived through a pandemic? Like I thought, honestly, I was going to a conference and it was canceled because, you know, in March yeah. 2020, because the pandemic. I mean, haven't we like I felt at that point my any sort of sense of cosmic purpose that I still had residually broke at that point like anything can happen like we've all lived through but so this. often that's really traumatizing it was it's almost the definition of trauma right. 
Yeah. yeah. So it can't yeah. be an ideal. I mean, unless unless your way of coping with it is to just be so numbed and desensitized that you're invulnerable to disappointment because you've given up all hope. Sorry to make it dramatic, but... Well, what about that Kierkegaard thing where you care about your beloved despite knowing that there's a a knife hanging over their head? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That's that the trick. Can't the fact That's that, the trick is that everything is, right. is so uncertain make you care about it more? Or the oh, same? It, yeah, I, I think some vulnerability... I'll, I'll, I'll propose more, but I'll, I'll settle on the same. <laughs> some vulnerability is, is essential. That's why it can't just all be necessity. See, if it were too much necessity and everything was fixed, or if you were so religious or fanatical that you thought God's plan is absolutely certain to unfold, you can relax and um, because you're so absolutely certain. And, and I think that would mm-hmm. actually be a different kind of despair. I think Kierkegaard thinks that too. Yeah, absolutely some indeterminacy, contingency, uncertainty is absolutely necessary. I was telling my class the other day that Prometheus, you know, who was punished by Zeus, I guess, right. you know, for two things. I think uh, he stole fire from the gods and gave it to human beings. So that's one gift we got from Prometheus. But the other gift we got from Prometheus was that we can't know the future. And no. that's a gift. And I always mm-hmm. thought that was really touching and profound because I asked my students, Did you, would you want to be omniscient? And they all pretty much said no. And I said, that's right. That's my answer, too, because there's all kinds of stuff I do not need to know, like how and when I will die. I'm glad I do not know yeah. that. Like, <laughs> there's way too much information. So the uncertainty is absolutely <laughs> essential. And I can see how it's liberating up to a point. So you don't want to know how you're going to die? I certainly don't. No, do you? No. I mean... I mean, that's a death sentence. That's yeah, almost literally know. a death in, sentence. In, I'm kind of curious. You know that story in uh, Le Guin, in the left hand of darkness, right? In the left hand of darkness, there is a sort of story within the story where you have this one person who knows. Uh, he, he basically goes to some sort of oracle and asks, you can ask them one question. When and how, when am I going to die? Mm-hmm. And they give him this date. And this date is so paralyzing. So there the determinism becomes paralyzing. He knows it will be X years from then. And in the end, he just throws himself out of the window. On that 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 date? On that date. So, yeah, (laughs) it was bound to happen. Uh, He could have gotten out of it by throwing himself out the window sooner. (laughs) He could have escaped fate. I think I might like to know how, but not when. Like if I knew I was going to be eaten by a tiger, I might like go to the zoo and look at them and kind of get used to them. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, you have more curiosity than I do. I think there's all kinds of things. It's good that we don't know. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. i think so too yeah so i don't know like if it is particularly maybe i'm an in a in a form of kierkegaardian despair mm-hmm. but i i you know the whole pandemic situation hit me very hard got rid of any sort of residual belief in cosmic purpose uh-huh. and uh you know like i think things just happen we don't know why we don't know if there is a purpose if there is we will not know it um but I think one way to deal with it is to, you have some goals, of course, you're a human agent, right? So you have goals and you try to be flexible. Uh, you you know, in the situation, you try to derive some enjoyment, attachment, love, etc. But you have to realize, you know, not in a stoic way, but in some sort of way that it's, it's all transient. It's all going to go away, uh, you know. The ending for each of us does not look look good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's end there. Uh, Thank you very much, everyone, for listening uh, this week. And uh, I think there's a way to secularize a sense of purpose or 
teleology, sort of, not the cosmic necessitarian sort of kind, but in this way, that although, yeah, the future is wildly unpredictable and uncertain, and it's true that adjusting yourself to that may require effort and it may inquire, require or involve pain of some kind, but it's it can be freeing and liberating. But there's another kind of thing you can incorporate that isn't going to be just an illusion. So this is my this is my worry. I mean, Nietzsche has a view like this, but I think he really thinks it's so illusory that you just have to get used to... This is a little bit like what Eric was describing when Nietzsche talks about like dancing at the edge of a precipice or a cliff. Um, that's the free uh-huh. spirit is able to do that. That's asking a lot, I think. But there's another thing you could say, which is that when you do find a kind of purpose or goal uh, in your life, it's not that it's an illusion. I mean, it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. It can be that this actually yeah. does really get you, if not on rails, at least on a road or a path. And it's not mm-hmm. that you're blind to the actual chaos of the future. It's that you're actually kind of making a path. Uh, and the other thing about it that keeps it from being wildly unpredictable is when you recognize that you have limitations and that you have a certain kind of nature or character that's, after all, um, not boundless. I mean, people don't change wildly you know, throughout their lives. They change somewhat, but they're kind yeah. of the same people throughout their lives. And it's true of ourselves, too. It's hard to see ourselves that way. But when you see that, like when I think about my vocation or my career, um, what I see in looking back on it was just, well, I guess I was always kind of good at this. Uh, and so it's not a complete accident that I wound up doing what I'm doing instead of being like a musician, because I'm an amateur musician. But I could see early on that I didn't have enormous musical talent. There's no way I was going to, you know, make it as a musician or impress very many people. And that's a kind of constant thing too. I could tell early on what was a what was a vocation and what was an avocation. Why why was why was number of people that you impressed the metric that you were taking to uh, this? It, it, well, it included myself. <laughs> okay. In other words, I could tell that what I was doing was kind of neat and kind of good, and I could see the limitations of what I was doing right away, too. Yeah. But Taylor, don't you think? I'm also an amateur musician. Oh, you play the lute. And I see you it. play the lute, don't you? Yes. I've seen, I've seen you. Oh, is there any possibility the two of you will I jam? I think we should, if we, we can. Yeah, I've seen you play the lute yeah. on Facebook before. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, I don't know if it's beautiful. I'm not particularly good, uh, as you say. <laughs> it's difficult to be a really good yeah. musician. We're in the same, you and I are in the same musician. gourd. Yeah. <laughs> in the same gourd. Yeah. But at the same time, you can think I just love to do it. Of course. It. It's, it's still like even without a purpose, even like if the best thing you're going to do is have a video on Facebook. Oh, sure. It's still it's still very worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. I believe to, that too. But what I mean it. is that yeah. um, it's not like I have any control of that. I can't decide to be suddenly musically gifted. And mm-hmm. this, so in other words, what I mean was there are paths that you kind of make for yourself, but then there's also sort of constraints or limitations that you're handed. Right. Like somebody said, you don't choose your gifts. That's why they're gifts. You've got them. And there's some things I can do pretty well and some things I can do not so well, but well enough to get enjoyment from them and be kind of proud of them and so on. Anyway, I mean, these are constraints that give your life a kind of structure. So it's not all chaos. I have a, I have a thought experiment. Yeah. Okay. What if it so happened because of a quirk in the undergraduate education system in the US, that there's a vast oversupply of really good philosophy professors, but a huge undersupply of Lutonists and Mandola oh, it's players. It's just the opposite, though. <laughs> I, I know. This is why it's a thought okay, experiment. Good, good. In philosophy, you're allowed to do that, or so I understand. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of great musicians out there. But suppose that yeah. weren't true. Yeah. Supposing it just somehow yeah. 
everybody really needed oh. to hear lutenists and mandola players <laughs> they really wanted that and people had kind of lost interest in having people explain to them what philosophers have to say because <laughs> everybody knows switch? it already yeah that's good mm -hmm. for whatever yeah. reason would you be open to switching if suddenly oh. just because of external factors you're actually judged by the standard of your society a pretty mediocre philosophy yeah. professor but an extraordinarily good <laughs> mandola player <laughs> What do you think, uh, Ellen? I think I, I think I'm, I'm formulating my answer in my head. But you go ahead if you, if you have an answer. You're allowed to come up with unintuitive counterexamples in philosophy, right? Like yeah. experiments. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Anyway. I just feel like I'm not good enough. But what if they said, "Oh my God, we just listened to that lute piece. It's amazing." I would say, guys, you are <laughs> wrong. I'm not that good. Like, yeah. imagine all the talented lute players are suddenly gone from the face of the earth. Yeah, COVID-24, it afflicts only loop I have players, thought right? of this kind of thing before. I've thought of it in a slightly different form, which is if I could go back in time and uh, uh -huh. to 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago and or more and teach the you know earlier Homo sapiens how to play the mandola or something like that, wouldn't mm -hmm. that be great? I'd be, the, I'd be the best musician in the world, maybe. Um, but my immediate thought is kind of like yours, which is, uh, man, what a terrible world if I'm the best mandolinist in yeah. the world that means just like yeah. uh in other words i'm tempted by it i have to say i mean if the if the conditions were right and i could make a living at it and and if you add that i thought i was a really great musician and i thought that after all i'm a mediocre philosophy professor because all my students already know everything i'm going to say and they've thought through it better what's the point of me standing up in front of a bunch of people explaining stuff that they already know i would switch yeah i i sometimes think i would be happy in a different world being a musician but the thing about the thought experiment here's my kind of critique of the thought experiment it's yeah, trying yeah. to pry apart my own personal assessment of the quality of my work from the yeah. public or other people's acclaim or judgment of it. And what I actually think is those two things can't be prized apart. Because like I said earlier when you said, well, what does it matter what other people think of it? It's because other people think that it's good or bad for the same reasons I think it's good or bad. And so it wasn't just other people uh, not being so impressed when I played the guitar. It's more like yeah. I could see that when I was playing the guitar, it wasn't so great or it was fine, but not terrific or whatever. So in other words, these things... We've had interesting versions of this conversation before in other episodes. One, when we were talking about Emerson, it was this similar thing about individualism and your own judgment and the judgment of the society around you. These things are so intertwined and enmeshed, they're hard to separate. But, yeah, I, I, would, I can imagine a world in which, yeah, I, I would love to have been a musician. You know, artists have all the fun. They're play. They get to play all the time. I think so, yeah. I, I, you know, the thing is that I honestly gave it a good shot, art, like visual art, mm. right? I draw, mm. I draw pictures, yes. as you know. As I know, I, I, have, a, you, I have a chapter yeah. in your book on thought experiments. And these are, are fine drawings. Beautifully illustrated book, yeah. I'm, I'm no Picasso, you know, like I know that. So I just have tried it. Like I was even for a few years trying to make my way as a professional artist. Mm. This is many mm -hmm. years ago before I went to grad school. Mm. And I just know that even though I'm a fine enough artist and I'm a reasonable musician, I could never excel in these things. Like I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, well, what does the word excel mean? Like, uh, like in my thought experiment, all the other <laughs> musicians have gone home. So sort of by definition, you're excelling. Ah, really yeah. nice. No, I don't see it. It's so hard to abstract from the real world in order to imagine this other world. I, I, do, I don't see this as a comparative concept because I know there are really great philosophers out there 
but I still feel like I can make a really meaningful contribution. Right. Whereas I'm not sure as a musician, of course, like making a meaningful, if all the great lutenists now suddenly were never there, then I would make, I suppose, a meaningful contribution, but it's very hard uh, to abstract away from that. So, and also I just enjoy doing something that I'm not really great yeah, at, yeah. like, like excelling in everything, or at least the push to excel in, in everything that you do. It's just so tight. There's really a great like, joy in when the learning curve is really steep. Because I played guitar for many years before I took up the mandolin. And then as I was learning uh -huh. the mandolin, it's like, yeah, the, the leaps you make and the improvement is really exhilarating. That That's really um, fun. But yeah. even if you don't advance at all mm -hmm. anymore, I still find uh, I still find it fun. Uh, I still, you know, there is there is a joy in the person who swims really badly, sort of puddles about, but still enjoys the swimming. Yeah. Like we should do more of that sort of stuff. Okay, we're going to take another little break here and then be right back with Helen DeCruz. I think when I think I wasn't meant to be a musician, if if I I don't know if I would ever quite put it that way, but that's the intuition is so this that wasn't meant to be um, because of the limits of my talent. Um, I think that actually shapes the kind of satisfaction I get out of it, knowing that because I can have the attitude mm -hmm. you just described, which is that I like that I've got like you know it's the personal best kind of phenomenon. You know, it's like for me this was really good. And for me, it's better yeah. and better than I was. And I I actually really like being in a room full of people who are doing something better than I'm doing it. I mean, it really pulls you up closer to their level. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the constraints, the fact that the future isn't completely so wide open that there's no purpose at all. There's a kind, It's not exactly purpose, but it's sort of what people are talking about when they say meant to be or not meant to be. I've heard somebody say uh, in music... Um, your limitations are your style, which I like. Mm. I like that because it shapes your style. Like so, it, yeah. so actually, mm. a lot of great musicians are great because they've learned to do something original with the limitations of their abilities. So they're not the most technically virtuosic musicians in the world, but what they can do has to be shaped around the limits of what they can do. And then that's an opportunity mm. for originality. Mm. I like that idea a lot. I have a yeah. piece coming out actually about about precisely that topic ah, about yeah. how you know, basically sprezzatura, you know, the sort of like mm. excellence is basically learning to live, l acknowledging the limits of your physical limits. Mm. Like, yeah. you, you don't like you have this pianist. What was his name again? Robert Schumann. Oh, Robert yeah. Schumann. He, he sort of like like did a sort of splint between his fingers in order to play the piano better. He wanted and his fourth finger to move more independently. Uh -huh. And he ended up ruining his fingers. Oh, so so that's not how to do it. How to do it is to recognize yeah. like, okay, my fingers only move a certain way. And like you can practice yeah. and get a bit better, but ultimately you have to live with your limitations. This was a co-project between Schumann and the Spirichets living in his brain, I think. I think he was <laughs> suffering from tertiary syphilis at the time he came up with this idea. Oh, is that the right pronunciation of spirochete? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> 
you know, a contrary example is Django Reinhardt, who I think had some injury to his hand, maybe when he was fairly young. Well, he burned his and he hand, wound yeah. up playing the guitar with his left hand with just two fingers. And he was a virtuoso. But his style of playing, I mean, and people aren't trying to emulate him. I mean, I don't think on purpose. But it's amazing what you can do with just two fingers on the on the fingerboard, on the fretboard, on a guitar. Well, I like to eat chocolate. And I know there must be people who are better at eating chocolate than I am. But I, I really don't care. <laughs> what does it mean um, to eat chocolate? Do you care? What does it mean to eat chocolate really well? Well, like they could distinguish ah. between two different, oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, like I like a hundred. I like a hundred percent best. Like I think really a hundred percent. Like have you tried it? It's like so bitter. It's terrible. Like right, it's a little bit like terrible. sandpaper. That's true. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> but no, the real chocolate affiniado likes likes it really very dark. I'm well, very. I'm, so I'm concerned that both of you have this sort of um deep feeling that you're not great and, and i wonder what that's about and and i'm worried it might not be a sort of pathology from being in this profession where people are constantly evaluating each other and writing letters of recommendation and taking it tests yeah. um but but i don't know what it means really that you say i'm just not a great mandolin player i'm just not a great artist like and even uh. if everybody thought i was They'd be wrong. Like, like what, what does that mean? Realism. Exactly? <laughs> I do think it's accommodating oneself to disappointments early on. Because when you first start mm-hmm. recognizing your limitations, it's it's disappointing and humbling. I don't know. What do you think, Helen? Like, like even Glenn Gould, who can play, you know, let's say he can play a fugue at 200 beats per minute. He can't pay, play it at 2,000 beats per minute. Yeah. You know, any, anybody who can do anything, you can come up with oh, a yeah. standard against which they fail. And a lot of really accomplished people feel like failures. I mean, seemingly really irrationally. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's the true of the two of you. Well. I don't know. Like, I feel getting rid of cosmic purpose yeah. and indeed, like, also this sort of thing, like the, the narrow road, I kind of feel like I can do more now. I'm bolder in my writing. I feel like I used to feel very self-conscious, like, does this paragraph make me sound smart? But now I don't care. I just don't care. I just write. I just. Oh, I interested. do think that's liberating. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I think it's liberating to not be afraid to be an oh, idiot. Oh, for writing, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't care. Like, I don't care. Uh, I I just care about making something nice. And And, you know, and then you just put it out there and you'll see what people say. If they don't like it, they don't like it. I think the academic um, life or career is uh, can be extremely inhibiting for this reason because you really have to. It's like your whole career is on the line when you turn in a dissertation or when you apply for a job or you come up for tenure. It's a professional hazard of academia to internalize a very punishing superego in that regard. That's right. Because yeah. a, a giant mistake is a lot more interesting than a small truth. Yeah, but you have to have a certain kind of security to feel safe in making right. a big mistake and the, and the the problem in this situation is if you make too many of those big dumb mistakes you're out of a job and then what are you right. going to do? Yeah. So it's it, it leads to a very internalized you could find, conservatism. You could find a patron, I suppose. That's what you, you could, need. You could call yeah. up you could call up Elon Musk and exactly. be like, "I think the world is a simulation." Yeah. He could say, "Well, would you oh, would you write that for yeah, a large yeah. check?" Yeah. 
Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And the sad thing is that yeah. when people do get tenure and they've got a lot of job security, they have so internalized these norms mm-hmm. that they have a hard time breaking out of it. I find that was true of me, too. Yeah. And I think things I've written in the last few years, I mean, I got tenure quite a long time ago, so it's taken me a long time to get this a little bit freeing mm-hmm. up a little bit. But I've written some essays you know, in the last five or ten years, which I never would have written 20 years ago out of fear that they weren't quite um, as, well, scholarly and professional as they could have been. When people would judge With, you. Yeah, not enough footnotes or not enough. Uh, so I feel that yeah. when people get tenure, all their colleagues should, like, take them off into the woods and have a wild party. <laughs> <laughs> run around the woods naked and... Yeah, I'm just spitballing yeah. here. I, I, yeah. I don't know what the... We'll I, have to run I this past so. the like... trustees, board of trustees, before we <laughs> go ahead with it. You just... Yeah, you just... Uh, I feel like when you have tenure, typically you have a lot of experience. You could be a lot, like a lot of the stuff that's preventing you from doing what, what could be really great for you, you know, things that you could write is just this internalized mindset. Like you have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of this, this like sort of self, self-obsession. You have to like, uh, yeah, let go of it. Well, I, I would get behind this. If people want to start some sort of, um, midlife overcome your critical inner voice Mm. um party um (laughs) academy i would put a little time into it because i think it'd be valuable for society because if there's it seems like there's a lot of people who like have all these great ideas that they're afraid to develop um because they're afraid they'll look foolish and like sure that's right who cares i'm sure that's right i think we should wrap up the one thing that i feel like is um i'm doing this because it's a purpose of my life is a big, big rhetorical, poetic thing to say. And I feel like I'm doing this because it'll make money or I'll doing this because it'll people will like me or it's a good career move. Those seem like very unpoetic, unprosaic, small things to say. And I feel the need for some kind of big thing to say because it's more inspiring and it's more fun. So if it's not going to be, I need to be a philosopher because it's the purpose of my life, I wish there were some other equally grand, inspiring thing to say to ourselves and others and people we wish to inspire. Hmm. I don't know what Kierkegaard would say. There's, you know, there's, I, I never actually, you know, in spite of all the tenor of this conversation, I don't think in my life I would have ever put it that way. Like, this is the purpose of my life kind of talk. But what I did mm-hmm. find resonant was the idea, uh, and it is a Lutheran idea of a calling, Um uh, uh, more like this is calling to me. It's like I really mm-hmm. wanted to do it, and I felt like when I did it, it was pulling me along. And um, it's more like that. Uh, it's kind of like love. When you love something, you want to pursue it. You want to have it. You want to, and so it does constitute your identity. Um, it is kind of something like a purpose in life. But I think what would really describe my motivation was something more like I couldn't wait to do it. I wanted to do it. It was sort of like being in love. That's how I experienced it. I kind of think, again, circling back to Zhuangzi. So in the second book of the Zhuangzi, he talks about finding the hinge. Mm. And what he means with that is that you have basically the universe, the Tao, which is like the universe, but also like any sort of purposes, any sort of like laws of nature, like everything. And the idea is that basically you have to find the hinge in which you can 
sort of be in harmony and he has this sort of idea of nature as an exemplar so you sort of like you go along with nature and he gives all these like animals etc as exemplars rather than like great humans which is what the confusions did but when you find the hinge crucially you can do not do like we there's a lot of like striving like we try to push like often i kind of felt that like a lot like like when I, early in my career i couldn't get a permanent job like it's almost like you're you're battling fate like you're trying to move the needle but ultimately maybe the best way to to find your way in life and that doesn't require any bigger sense of purpose is to find the hinge where you can sort of at least internally and mentally be at peace hmm. Hmm. i like that and maybe get out of the way of what the Tao is doing, right? Yeah. Rather than make your, although that seems to me a little bit like surrendering yourself to the purpose, no? You could still, like, you have to see what works for you. Right. And, and like, Zhuangzi gives all these skilled people as exemplars. Like, if he does talk about people, he talks about a butcher, like this guy who's, like, cutting up an ox. So you have this story. And then you have, like, this king. He says, wow, fantastic. And he says, like, eventually, the way I learned to cut up the ox is that I just go, you know, in between the nothingness. So that way my knife keeps on being sharp. And then the king says, wow, you have taught me the secret to living life well or something like that. And that always struck me like there you have a butcher like cutting a carcass. It was not a pretty sight. But somehow the idea is that if you do something well, and I think that's still like a sort of thing in, in like work ethics, right? People don't like work ethics these days. But like if in your job, whatever it is, it could be butchery, you're doing it well, you're doing it in harmony. You don't feel self-conscious, right, right, right. right? That That is the secret to life, a lot of yeah. our life, I think. There's a way in which that's like kind of teleological and kind of not, because it's not like a single mm -hmm. goal unifying everything, but it is a kind of pattern or groove that you yeah. can get into that's there. Yeah, that's not just your own kind yeah. of um, delusion or invention. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, nice. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. We didn't take any breaks, but I will just insert them when i edit the yeah i sort of think you could do like like the butcher yeah. <laughs> uh, find a place where there's nothing and insert yeah. a insert i'll a carve break. it at the joints and okay. i'll never have to sharpen yeah. my um cursor no okay <laughs> thanks so <laughs> thanks, much Alan. thank you thank you eric thanks, thanks, thanks for your okay. time and have a nice weekend you, you too also have a nice Ciao. weekend you too bye, bye, -bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's edited by me, Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions. <laughs>